This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we have a discussion vaguely inspired by Harrison Fluss's essay, Dialectical Enlightenment, in which we reflect on the merits of the Enlightenment and completely neglect to mention the Frankfurt School at all. This week's episode features a few clips from the West Texan critical theorist Rick Roderick's lectures on Marcuse, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and postmodern culture. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. Lexi, universally unrolling and unfolding throughout history. And Donald. Hey, it's Donald from uh, Communist League of Tampa, Commissariat of Enlightenment. <laughs> so what are we talking about tonight, Donald? Oh, um, there's actually recently been a debate amongst the left between, um, I guess, people on between people on two sides, kind of um, a skepticism towards the Enlightenment that kind of seems to be rooted in... Um, social justice type politics a lot a lot of Foucauldian type ideas that have entered the left i guess you could call it the post-structuralist left and then we have kind of this um desire from certain people like uh one of the writers is harrison Fuss to kind of reinvigorate the left with enlightenment values and kind of stress the um, continuity of the Enlightenment with the Marxist project, rejecting the Enlightenment as a Eurocentric, you know, Eurocentric male construct that has no, you know, no viability for the left today. So you're referring to a, I guess we're discussing a piece um, called Dialectical Enlightenment by Harrison Fluss and Landon Frim. Yeah. That was in Jacob. That was in Jacobin, right? Yeah, and it was a response to a um, it was a response to an article by Viewpoint, um, called uh, "Hold On." It's a uh, by Assad Haider. It's called "The Paradox of Enlightenment." Yeah, the paradox of enlightenment, and basically, it kind of makes an argument that um, this the people who um still scribe the enlightenment ideals and argue for their importance are kind of in an idealistic position basically that is it's giving idealism too much um and an idea is too much important in the um movement of history i guess and that really um it's kind of a structuralist marxist argument in a way kind of very althusserian yeah that's a fair read also accepting, also accepting some of Foucault's ideas. Like, where does this all come from, though? Um, because a couple pieces that we were looking at um, that we, wasn't necessarily the subject of this episode, but I think relates to it, were by Lauren Goldner from, like, 1989 and 1991, kind of talking about, like, the phenomenon of, like, um, multiculturalism and critiques of Eurocentrism and so on and so forth and how they've affected the left in the United States. And one thing that struck me about those two yeah. pieces was they were written in 1989 and 1991, and it could have just as easily been talking about the culture of the left now. 
So this was a long exactly. time coming. And maybe we could, before we even jump into it, just talk a little bit about maybe how we got to this point. Well, I mean, my first question was basically going to be, like, why is it that, you know, so much of the left rejects the Enlightenment today? And where really does this come from? And you're right that those Goldner pieces, they really do basically describe the left today, even though they're almost 30 years old, basically. So much of my, like, instincts are to kind of... Because a lot of this stuff, it seems like it's basically Foucault and, like, 70s, like, philosophy and critical theory and so on filtered through social media. Um, and so it's like this stuff basically like started in academia and then kind of seemed to filter into broader like activist culture and then eventually in through, you know, social media online. And now it's again, is common current, uh, common currency on the left in a way that is, you know, mostly harmful. <laughs> Yeah, I think what Goldner is describing is basically the same thing we're doing with today, in which basically Marxism came under attack from all sides in academia, including the left. And so, you know, you had post-structuralism and post-colonial studies develop, and they basically became like a way to still be left-wing and progressive, but reject Marxism as being this kind of Eurocentric world historic ideology that... um result of a bunch of like old white dudes who you know didn't really understand the colonial standpoint and really didn't understand you know the true um existence of the subaltern i think we need to be a little more uh charitable to the left because what really happened is that marxism fell apart marxism was this incredibly systematic um knowledge system marxism leninism for the most part um and it that was a you know was a significant influence throughout the world um intellectually speaking it was in a really interesting way like a state founded on a kind of sociology a state founded on some kind of critique or whatever and um the project failed miserably, thus even the more rational form of it, you know, or the seemingly more rational, you know, social democratic form of it, um, that went to shit the same way the rest of, you know, high liberal Keynesianism went to shit um, and was, you know, that part of the left had egg on their face. Basically, everybody implicated with this big Lasallian, like romantic populist project in either its capitalist form or in its, you know, weirdo historical abortion form. Um, you know, it was all wrong. <laughs> it was all wrong and it all fucking fell apart. And so people had, like, especially lifelong leftists, had a well-earned skepticism of everything that they had believed. And, and you know, <clears throat> since the Russian Revolution, the state that came out of the Russian Revolution didn't really work out. And in my opinion, the systemization, I, I think we could at least agree that, um, you know, the, the common turns version of Leninism that ended up being exported everywhere, that definitively has failed. And, um, and so basically, that's like a hundred years. That's a hundred years of being wrong. Like there's, there's a reason that people went there and not just wrong, but supporting absolutely monstrous projects. Well, no, that's a very good point to bring that up. And I think what we're talking about here is, I guess you could say, the hegemony that 
the Soviet Union was able to have kind of on the global Marxist left in terms right. of determining what that was, not only by its very existence and, you know, claiming to put in practice these ideas, but in the various debates and existences of these organizations worldwide. It, it's important yeah. to point out, though, that there is a thorough line, I think, of principled good Marxist critique from the left that existed, you know, in in an, in mostly kind of on the margins and outside of, I guess you could say that broader uh, sphere that I think was able to maintain, I think, a principled, uh, genuine Marxist analysis that wasn't put in the service of a, an increasingly dysfunctional um state. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And obviously, those are the theorists that I find to be, you know, the people that gave me a sense of what what I'm, I don't know, being able to see people still do that, despite all of that historical, you know, baggage falling away, like, and, and especially people that weren't afraid to engage further with their discipline. Like too often Marxists only engage with Marxists or something, you know, people that really demonstrate an understanding of their discipline that they can like impress normies with. It's not just limited to our little cult. Like, you know, that's the stuff that really invigorates me. Not the, um, not a lot of the post-structuralist stuff and the, and the structuralism is just embedded in, in, uh, liberalism now it's 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 you know you don't have to be a radical commie or something to be a structuralist in fact the structuralism is so paralyzing and it it seems to imply that we can do nothing except you know have like i don't know better hiring practices or you know you can get back at people in your everyday life for being like you know interpersonally oppress, oppressive in some way um and you know what else can you really hope for you can hope for like more diversity in soda advertisements and uh you know yeah, having, yeah. Having, having the new lady ghostbusters movie do well but but even then like people are hyper aware that with increased visibility and representation comes they have like some critical theory in there you know they have or and by critical theory i mean marxism they have some like you know old school like a sense that uh that you know being articulated in that way can be a trap like so they they don't even get to really enjoy that <laughs> you know what i'm saying no yeah that's well, that's just like the lowest common denominator stuff they getting ends up they end up you end up getting you know it's sort of like i maybe maybe it's like their version of like the che guevara shirt at the mall or whatever that you get at the end of the end of the road yeah in um in the 90s there was a queer bart shirt you know like like bart simpson you know it was uh it's like a kind of radical chic thing for a second. I don't know. I remember some critical theorists writing about it and being like, God damn it, this is the commodity form, you plebs. I think it was Nancy Fraser. Um <laughs> I kinda yeah. wanna look that up. I, I might like I miss those that bootleg Bart Simpson merchandise. Yeah. Was- See that's that's what I'm saying. Like I don't know. When you grow up in a world where there was where reason has been identified with the jackboot, like there there's just a lot of people that are gonna go towards this kind of irrationalist or sort of um i don't know this this direction that favors multiplicity that's echoing ironically it's echoing like nazi anti-humanism and people don't have a sense of that um (laughs) but the even the concept that anti-humanism why would the nazis be into anti-humanism like (laughs) Or, or yeah i mean i think what it has done is because of the kind of collapse of um 
the Soviet Union and the eroding of its ideology. It created, you know, this a counter ideology within the left and academia, which became identified with post-structuralism that not only was attacking, you know, the Stalinist, you know, understandings of Marxism, but became an attack on Marxism itself, even in its more, you know, anti-Stalinist variants that kind of rejected a lot of the dogmatic Marxism-Leninism that was, you know, popular at the time how much does that relate to like the concept of like totalitarianism where it's like it's all it's all kind of the same you know well yeah that's kind of um there's kind of this argument became popular regarding the history of revolutions that basically like the problem was that you know we we basically in the enlightenment we basically overthought how much um, it's possible for humans to transform themselves. And so because of that, we were bound to these like revolutionary excesses like the French Revolution's reign of terror or the Red Terror and the Russian Revolution and then eventually Stalinism. And so that basically this idea that reason could be used as a tool by humans to improve our own condition was kind of you know, this admirable idea that unfortunately when applied simply just leads to totalitarianism. Yeah. Like, you know. So that that's like the liberal version and that, that has a lot of continuity with some like with with other kinds of liberal thought. You don't need to be a post structuralist to adopt something like that. Um and usually it comes with a sort of uh Richard Rorty sense of, well, you know, thank God we have a pluralist society. So even if, you know, you live in an irrational life and I live a rational life, we can coexist or something. Like, um, whereas I think there's another strand of post-structuralist theory that I think the most able and like clear articulator of this is Rick, Rick Roderick, who has some incredible YouTube lectures. I really can't recommend them enough. No, they're great. They're great. Basically they're phenomenal. It's like it's like a bearish guy, kind of looks like Zizek a little bit, at least in the heavier set ones. But he also he has a, his voice is basically Huckleberry Hound. I mean, he's a no. West Texan critical theorist, is what yeah. he is. He's a West Texan, West Texan like post Marxist, like to, like very depressed critical theorist, but with incredible insights. And what he he wrote a paper called uh, "Reading Derrida Politically," where he argues against Richard Rorty's more liberal interpretation of Derrida, which Derrida probably means himself. But because Derrida is all about misreading, um, <laughs> like misreading things intentionally, um, Rick Roderick is like, you know what? I, this is what I'm going to do with Derrida. I'm going to read this into it. <laughs> um, reason itself like uh, the dominance of reason in public life is itself a form of totalitarianism. And so what it's doing is bringing liberal capitalism into the realm of, of, of anti-totalitarian critique and saying that the way that even the pluralism that Richard Rorty loves is part of a actual totalitarian domination. So that's the stake that's why people sometimes go here as Marxists, is it allows one to say that we're not really free in an autonomous way that capitalism presents us as being. The more that the Enlightenment project progressed, it simply turned out not to be the case. 
that we became less afraid in the face of the unknown. No, the unknown appeared more terrifying than ever. And it wasn't the case that we became less dogmatic. As a matter of fact, the sciences have now branched out into so many areas that the only way anyone could believe in any of them is dogmatically since none of us could study them because we don't have world enough or time. So in the paradoxical way, the Enlightenment builds up a kind of intellect intelligent enough to see through mystification. That's where I talked about Marx and Freud and other figures. We build up an intellect hard enough, as it were, to see through these mystifications. But any intellect that powerful has a tendency to become totalitarian. This is the fundamental problem. Why did the Enlightenment, which began with the love for it, something that I too love, human reason, and with its use to demystify things, how did it itself become a force of mystification? Well, here's another way it did. I've talked about how it debunked religion, but it engaged in overkill. By debunking religion in the way in which it did, it left us open and said science had nothing to do with whole fields of human experience which are now just given over to the wildest kind of insane theories. Why? Well, because science marked off this terrain of reason, but outside it, it pays no attention. It gives no guidance. Why are there things outside of instrumental reason at all? That's the theme of the whole course. The self under siege could never find meaning in this denuded form of thinking and living where all that you're up to is making rational decisions one after another. That's not a rich enough notion of experience or human life. So what we have is on the one hand this sort of enlightenment instrumental reason that is for sure necessary for the sciences and so on. And on the other the ways in which people today try to get meaning are just incredibly bizarre. Yeah, I know uh, who you're talking about, and he's definitely got some good lectures on YouTube. Definitely check out Rick Roderick. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that kind of does explain how this rejection of the Enlightenment came into place and how this anti-humanism kind of became in vogue. And it's interesting, though, because the same kind of anti-humanism really comes from the epistemology of figures like Nietzsche and Heidegger, who were reactionaries, you know. They believed that, you know, Heidegger was a straight-up Nazi, and Nietzsche was, you know, a reactionary aristocrat who, you know, celebrated the crushing of the Paris Commune. And so it seems strange to me that, like, so much of this anti-humanism that's become popular on the left it's kind of similar to right-wing epistemology in a way. You know, it's kind of subjective. There's no such thing as objective morality. There's just the subjective will to power of people, you know, anarchically clashing in history. You know, that kind of idea. And one thing I think was funny was, you know, a lot of these alt-right kids, you know, they complain about postmodernism as being like this disguised form of Marxism that's seeping into our culture and corrupting us. But apparently, like, somebody posted some Derrida on some alt-right group, and they are like, actually, this is really interesting. It makes a lot of sense. 
And so it's, <laughs> it, you know, it is, or you can kind of make this, like, I think what Harrison Fluss is, he was kind of making this argument that, like, you know, people are talking about the alt-right and how bad it is. But a lot of the premises of the alt-right are, you know, emphasizing difference over universality, you know, that there's no humanity as such, but just different humanities and different kind of tribes that all have their own subjective kind of understandings of the world. So it doesn't make sense for all humans to kind of have a collective interest. There's only different, you know, nations or whatever. And so you can kind of see how that would be in order to kind of defeat the alt-right or whatever, to kind of, you know, overcome it, this need for um, a kind of humanist universalism needs to come into play. Now we kind of have to accept that there is a greater humanity and that it does have a, a general potential for emancipation. How much of this, like, and I'm going to be asking a lot of questions because I feel like I'm a little bit out of my depth here. Um, I took like a kind of an interest in philosophy around the time that I was in college, but I didn't really like go super deep into it or keep up on it mostly because, you know, I had other shit to do and I got sucked into activism or whatever. But um, so how much of this, the development of this stuff was just kind of like a post-colonial hangover in Europe that kind of seeped its way into academia where, you know, they basically the enlightenment project sort of ended up just leading to, Europe being the center of, you know, global imperialism for over a hundred years. Um, well, I, I would guess the claim is something along the lines of the enlightenment was ideology. It was imperialist ideology. Like it was just, it was a bunch of functional claims, um, that served to allow them to dominate and to continue to dominate. I mean, I'm not sure I understand the question otherwise. Yeah, maybe I don't understand the question here. <laughs> um, Getting into some philosophical shit here. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I, yeah, maybe I should have gotten stoned before this. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I, I should have read more of the general philosophy of the Enlightenment. Yeah, but that's a whole rabbit hole. If if There's a if, lot of stuff to read. Yeah, the amount of stuff we would probably have to read to speak about this knowledgeably on a podcast, you know, it's probably in excess of what we have time. Like we, we would, we would have to probably postpone it till next year in order to really, <laughs> you know, get to a point where we could probably actually speak on this with some, some level of depth, you know, cause like I've, you know, in the Goldner pieces, Goldner refers to Heidegger, he refers to Nietzsche. I've, I've read a little bit of both of them, but not enough to actually comment intelligently on, on, on their, uh, on their uh, viewpoints and everything and then on their outlook or, you know, their philosophy with any kind of substance. So, yeah, well, I, uh, I certainly can talk about Nietzsche. I have, I love Nietzsche actually. And there's a great Victor Surge essay, the old, uh, Bolshe anarchist. Um, uh, he wrote in 1917, a critical essay on Nietzsche, which I think does a good job of explaining why I love Nietzsche. And it's really his negative side. It's the part of him that is negating old traditions that I love. And, um, <laughs> There's and there's also this idea of um, the way one can revitalize some of history and old traditions to make new things happen. But Victor Serge makes the very good point that 
you know, it's the negative Nietzsche we like. It's what Nietzsche wants to build that we don't like. <laughs> and I think that's like a good way of understanding not just Nietzsche, um, but but even even Heidegger in a way. Heidegger does present us with a with a problem um, that you know we're gonna die, <laughs> and um, it's built in, and we all have a sense of. And I understand Heidegger far less better than I understand Nietzsche. So fair warning. Um, but that, um, we, there's a sense that we want to be part of where we are and like express our, our more unique being (laughs) like, uh, not as a series of like regimented customs that flattens the whole world and like takes the spice out of life. Um, but I celebrate the things that make us us or that, you know, I don't know. It's similar to Nietzsche in terms well, of, it's kind of like, um, creativity. I like Dasein. What makes us, what, how do you become who you are, basically? Like what, is, what makes your identity, you know, unique and authentic, I guess, is what you're getting at. So Heidegger says we're, we're in the terms of the past, we're already in a world. In terms of the present, care reveals us as trying to be at home in the world. See, you may notice this home, this sort of homey language of Heidegger's. The fact that he turns out to be a fascist, this has made me to this day wary of language that's overly homey, sort of. That's why I don't like Grand Canyon. It's too homey as a movie. But anyway, (coughs) care reveals us at being at home among, or being among, or trying to feel that you're in the right place, you know, that you belong in a place. In terms of the future, we are always, according to Heidegger, ahead of ourselves. Have you ever, and this is, I think, another profound part about the narrative of the self. In a certain way, what our plans and projects are, are not a part of our future, but a part of our present. And, and this is, I think, one of the most profound parts of the analysis that the young Heidegger gives. The mood that he thinks that reveals what Dasein really is, and if this will connect with my first lecture about the masters of suspicion, is anxiety. That is the mood that will reveal, as it were, the formal existential character of Dasein is anxiety. Anxiety. Now, when I say mood here, you could easily misunderstand me. All the, the account Heidegger is giving, while it's a story about the human self, this, this account of the, anxi- of the mood of anxiety I'm about to give you briefly is not the kind of anxiety for which you run to the doctor or the psychiatrist and you take a Valium or talk it out or get on a damn 12-step program because it is an anxiety before the fear of nothingness. It's an anxiety in the face of death. These are structures of the selves. These aren't symptoms that Phil Donahue or Oprah Winfrey can fix. To be asked to be cured of your fundamental despair, your anxiety, is to ask to be cured of what little self you may have. It is a stupid thing to even want in a way because it is our anxiety that makes us Look at what, at how we came up from the past. The way that that's described by Heidegger is that we were abandoned to the they, 
to dasman, the crowd. What does he mean by that? Well, he means we grew up in a, in a place like West Texas or Cleveland, Ohio or Bangladesh, where the way we grew up and, and the way our past is structured, we didn't learn our moral theories from Kant or Mill. We learned them because our mamas spanked our butts, said, don't steal, whap, you know, this we were thrown into that. We were abandoned to those values, as it were. It's not, it's not a scary thing. That's how we learn. See, this is a way to try to redirect our attention to the concreteness of being a self, as opposed to giving a philosophical account. This was Heidegger's attempt. Yeah, and I actually really appreciate him from an existentialist point of view, but it's crystal clear that Heidegger's philosophy is implicated um, because of how, you know, he felt that Hitler was docile on earth, was like that kind of bold project. Docile on horseback. Yeah. It's <laughs> when, when, when someone makes it that clear for you, um, you can choose to read it differently. And again, you know, that's a post-structuralist practice. That, you know, you could have a radical reading of 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 Heidegger if you wish. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. But you have to consider why this Nazi came up with this. If you're going to be a genealogical critical theorist, yeah, and that's, that's, what I was gonna, that's a Nietzsche that was thing. Next, yeah, that was literally my next question. So, because like, what was it that you know, if if Nietzsche and Heidegger had like these really awesome critiques and were really useful from a critical aspect, like what led them both to adopt such a reactionary set, set of prescriptions? You know, was it just that, it, particularly in the case of Heidegger, the, the reactionary road seemed to be the most feasible at that time? Or was it, like, what was it? I mean, because I know, because like, you know, Marx had developed like a pretty extensive critique of, you know, like bourgeois society and so on and so forth. But the road that he advocated for was, you know, way, way extremely radical. It would have constituted an enormous break um, with, you know, society as it existed. Um, although, you know, he was, you could argue that he had a very uh, sunny outlook in terms of um, what uh, prospects the workers movement had in Europe at the time. So I don't know. I think I'll I'll take a stab at it. I think that perhaps the difference between critiquing modernity itself and capitalism as such, because I think Marx mm. was a defender of modernity but a critic of capitalism, whereas someone like Heidegger or Nietzsche would just be a, a critic of modernity itself. And so basically Marx saw that you know the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and the rise of bourgeois society carried with it a potential for a greater emancipation, but simply didn't go far enough. And this is kind of like where his dialectical method took him, was that, you know, the, the problem isn't, you know, the universality itself, but the fact that it's not applied rigorously enough to the whole of humanity, and as well as in, you know, condemning class society. And so he did kind of believe in this project of, you know, kind of humanity grasping for perfection and developing itself. and Which brings us back to the Enlightenment. Yeah, which is the idea, basically, the Enlightenment project is the idea that humanity can, can change nature and therefore change itself. 
even you know, even if the Enlightenment never was really able to fully come to grasp with these ideas, I think it really took Marx to kind of fully ra- develop um, a rational and you know full version of these ideas. I think that people like Heidegger and Nietzsche just rejected the idea of modernity itself and the project of humanity trying to unleash its full potentials and become a more equal and egalitarian species. Nietzsche has an interesting relationship with modernity because Nietzsche isn't boohooing over destroying old traditions. Nietzsche just wants to make sure that this horrible Christian ethic, this kind of ethic of resentment, this like life denying um, ethic didn't destroy what was good about life. And Nietzsche has a sense of amor fati. One must love our faith. He has a sense of that. that <laughs> he's a Darwinian. He thinks life is struggle. He thinks you know human beings are these you know primates on a rock, <laughs> you know, and that that, that um, the struggle for domination is is part of life, but especially in the conditions that we find ourselves, the real sickening thing about the will to power is that those that are, you know, more skeptical, more thoughtful, more self-reflective are, are going to trust themselves less than those who are just more confident, just going to throw themselves out there. And I think if you've ever been in a leftist space, you know exactly what someone like Nietzsche is talking about. Like you see people that are maybe very intelligent, inquisitive, but they're lost. They're not very confident. Then you have someone throwing their weight around. Who's going to, you know, who's going to dominate? Who's going to be able to take, take control of that? That's why you need a Lenin. You need a Lenin who's both at once. (laughs) Well, I mean that, you know, I think the experience of the Russian revolution is drives a lot of nausea about power (laughs) like drives a lot of um pessimism about about human nature like in in a legitimate way it's not just like ideological like i think people people kind of come to this idea that human nature itself is corrupted and that power corrupts and that people inherently want more power and the more power you have, the more corrupt you are. Uh, this is just kind of a common sense thing that we can observe in life. It's, it's the who thesis. The Russian revolution is just self-evidence that self-evident that, you know, power corrupts and, you know, this, you, you don't play with that shit, man. You don't fuck with political power, except it's, in very <laughs> moderate and reformist and cautious ways. It's the who it's, Hey, meet, meet the new bus. Same as the old bus, man. Think about it. You just become what you yeah. hate. <laughs> and I think like a more careful historical understanding of the Russian Revolution shows that it really wasn't that way, that it was far more complex than that. That, you know, even Dzerzhinsky, the leader of the Cheka, had, you know, concerns about how things were going as early as like the 1920s and whatnot. And it's it's obviously more complex than that kind of narrative. But I think that, you know, the kind of liberal narrative that has been constructed in order to oppose you know the um you know the communist idea has actually been it's been forced to kind of reject its own enlightenment values in a way i think that's very insightful because again i i'm i'm still going to defend the basic idea that like 
the Russian Revolution, unfortunately, you know, didn't show us humanity overcoming all this stuff. And ultimately, like, I can see why it fills people with nausea. But in order, <laughs> in order to destroy the hopes for communism or something, or in order to destroy, you know, trade unionism even, yeah, one basically had to turn their backs on the whole revolutionary legacy of the Enlightenment and really make uh, humanism into something very empty. And if I can, I think of the Enlightenment as a kind of, I don't know, event, like a kind of point in time, uh, something more localized. And I think of humanism as that like bundle of ideas that comes out of the Enlightenment. What parts of the Enlightenment event do you think are worth preserving for the left and what things should you know, what should be kind of just thrown out the window, basically? Well, when you think of the Enlightenment as a sort of event, I think it's fairly obvious. We're talking about the bourgeois revolutions and what come, and the regimes that come out of the bourgeois revolutions. Like, um, it's, it's not always necessary when one draws the line, like, or where one draw, draws the line between exactly what we want, exactly what we don't want. But clearly... Capitalism is the negation of humanism. <laughs> like it was, it was the worm in the core of the Enlightenment. Um, was that capitalism would be the humanist economy? It turns out to not be so. It turns out to become a monstrous class society. Yeah, at the same time, Rousseau does kind of hark against that. Like, yeah, you do have figures like Adam Smith and Kant who kind of see capitalism as you know the ultimate humanist ideal. But then you have people like Rousseau who would argue that private property itself corrupts humanity. But so Rousseau, there's tension within the Enlightenment itself right there already. Rousseau, because, Rousseau is also thought of as a sort of proto-counter-Enlightenment figure. Rousseau has an entire essay about why the arts and sciences, why studying and like uh, why intellectual life has actually made things a lot worse hmm. and is thought of as a a um, kind of anti-civ thinker or proto-anti-civ thinker as well. I mean, um, I can see the whole state of nature thing kind of being anti-civ, but I think it's, I don't know, I, in a way, like, I don't think you can really remove Rousseau from the Enlightenment because he was the thinker for, like, of the French Revolution. Like, all sides of the French Revolution used Rousseau's arguments in their defense. Even the right wing, for example, said that Rousseau was just, you know, kind of describing how to live a just moral life out in the woods on your own and wasn't meant to be politically applied. And so I think Rousseau's arguments about private property kind of go against that. And it kind of shows that there maybe were different wings of the Enlightenment. Like there was perhaps a right wing of the Enlightenment, a center and the left of the Enlightenment in a way. And maybe Rousseau kind of represents the more left wing aspect of the Enlightenment. I'm just saying he—he's not an uncomplicatedly un enlightenment figure. I'm just yeah, that, that, that first discourse. You got, you got to read the first discourse. It's—it's it's nuts. Oh yeah, I've read the first discourse, and I—I I was honestly like amazed on how similar it is to Marxism. Like uh, the one on the arts and sciences, or the one on uh, inequality. I mean, yeah, the one on inequality. Yeah, the second discourse on inequality is is a huge influence on Marx. But the, I'm telling you, the first the first discourse is pro is like. You know, some primitivists really enjoy that. I mean, Rousseau is also a sexist, for example. You know, he has some pretty horrifying ideas about women. 
But the idea is that, you know, this idea of an egalitarian humanity, you know, mastering, you know, its own politics, like the idea of the social contract, the idea of kind of overthrowing autocracy and establishing an egalitarian social order, that does, that is a part of the Enlightenment, I think. That is intention of other parts of the Enlightenment. And yeah. And I think that's kind of where that more that more humanist uh, aspect of it comes from. Yeah, for me, the interesting thing about the Enlightenment is how it const- it does constantly betray humanism, <laughs> like especially in, in with slavery and gen- the colonialism, the imperialism. I mean, you know, I almost get mealy mouth saying it because I've you know said it so often. It's like there's so many things that come out of this that are, you know, truly anti-humanist, not in some theoretical way, but really like paving over and destroying the so-called natural rights of, of all these individual humans throughout the world. Um, yeah. I mean, I was going to say though, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, for example, would say that, you know, black people were subhumans and therefore did not have natural rights or being a theorist of natural rights. But at the same time, you had someone like, Diderot, who would write, You are neither a god nor a devil. By what right then do you enslave people? You are not slaves. You would suffer death rather than be enslaved. Yet you want to make slaves of us. Do you believe then that the Tahitian does not know does not know how to die in defense of his liberty? This Tahitian, whom you want to treat as a chattel, as a dumb animal, this Tahitian is your brother. You are both children of nature. What right do you have over him that he does not have over you? Which is, you know, itself like a very, you know, it's that's a complete attack on, you know, the idea that one people is superior to another and therefore can enslave another people. And you had also, you know, Enlightenment figures talking about how they were, you know, they were citizens of the world. And so there is this kind of tension also between, you know, the colonialist impulses of the Enlightenment as well as this kind of egalitarian, you know, idea that, you know, all humans are part of one brotherhood and there's equality of nations that, you know, is sort of republicanism, I guess. Yeah. It's bringing up the Haitian revolution uh, is a good pivot to what I really think is interesting about humanism and it's humanism when it gets into the hands of people outside of the purview of the enlightenment, more or less. Like um, in in the Haitian Revolution, it, it gets into the hands of, of slaves, and slaves force these Enlightenment ideologues to recognize what humanism really means. And um, two other figures in that tradition are um, Franz Fanon and Huey Newton, who both employ a kind of like revolutionary humanism, a humanism from from the victims of the enlightenment, from the victims of humanism, you know, like bringing this Eurocentric form into something, uh, into a real kind of higher universality, like a bunch of white dudes talking about universality doesn't undermine the possibility that there could really be something universal, some more universal theories like, yeah, that's what I think I was going to say is that a lot of academics dismiss the ideas of universal and universalism and humanism because they're seen as you know coming from Europe. 
But the idea is that these kind of desires are in human nature itself, and that humans by nature have a desire to be free from domination. And so to the extent that these white European thinkers thought, you know, that white Europeans were the only true humans and everyone else was subhuman, they only applied it to themselves. But if you truly follow this logic that all humans are have a universal, you know, striving for freedom, then that kind of, you know, it un, it actually it actually goes against Eurocentrism in a way. So the fact that, yeah, maybe the, a lot of these ideas were, you know, discovered and, and articulated, not really even discovered, but articulated yeah, by... Yeah, not Europe. even discovered. That's the thing. They were articulated by Europeans, but that doesn't prevent them from having meaning to non-Europeans who actually bring their full, you know, fruition into light through their actions. Yeah. I mean... I think that's like uh, the most constructive way to view it. However, there, I do think there, the Althusserians have an interesting point, and I feel like that's really where left-wing anti-humanism picks up, is, um, is that there's a point when Stalin installs a constitution in the Soviet Union, and okay, the, you know, we did it. We got through that class struggle phase, and now we're we're in a tr- a true humanist society and you know there's a socialist humanist kind of phase and i think that's an important way to situate altusser um because that is really the turn and that he's skeptical of and it go makes him go in all kinds of directions but i think there's reason to be very skeptical of humanism as ideology the reason why humanism spread as it did is not because it's true. It's not because it's actually universal, but because it was good ideology. Like it, it, it could be, it was a good meme that could be hijacked. Um, well, that's what I think is humanism can be used by the bourgeoisie to kind of placate class struggle, basically, basically saying we're all in this together. You know, we're just, you know, you, you know our class divisions don't really matter because we're all equal politically and does it make sense you know for you to overthrow capitalism because ultimately we're all equal we just have different stations in life you know whatever and you know and another there's a quote by Carl Schmidt actually about the concept of humanity another fascist philosopher here that interesting but he says the concept of humanity as an especially useful ideological instrument of imperialist expansion, and in its ethical humanitarian form, it is a specific vehicle of economic imperialism. Here, one is reminded of a somewhat modified expression of Proudhon's, whoever invokes humanity wants to cheat. To confiscate the word humanity, to invoke and monopolize such a term, probably has certain incalculable effects, just as denying the enemy the quality of being human and declaring him to be an outlaw of humanity. And the war can thereby be driven from most extreme inhumanity. So basically, it's this argument that if you marshal the category of of humanity, basically you're just kind of hiding your own particular interests behind this, in order to declare your enemies, you know, enemies of humanity, so that their extermination can be justified. And I feel like a lot of the left kind of buys into that argument, which and it's funny because one of the people he uh, quotes is Proudhon. Whoever invokes humanity wants to cheat was his saying. Well, there are reasons to be skeptical of people invoking 
I mean, almost anything. We live in a very cynical society. Um, the true, real thing, the authentic thing, the human thing, the good thing. You know, these are all things, that, these are all words ruined by advertising and politics. And, and it's very difficult to articulate articulate things in a way that commands trust and if anyone could figure it out a million advertisers would hijack it and make it terrible immediately yeah it's like anytime they need to sell you like a politician needs to sell someone it's like we have to do something for the children but it's like we can't just like stop believing that there are children you know what i mean like and just because people you know hijack humanity doesn't mean like the idea of humanity is necessarily bullshit i mean yeah, because it is true that, you know, colonists in France and Algeria, for example, they said that they were doing this to civilize the Algerians and bring them up to be true humans, like the French were, for example. And so, yes, that's an idea of people rationalizing humanity to justify the utmost brutal, you know, most, utmost brutality against another group of humans by kind of excluding them from the sphere of humanity. But does that necessarily... Does that necessarily make it so that the concept of humanity as such has no value whatsoever? And here's why I stress humanism over the Enlightenment. Because I'm willing to accept that the way the Enlightenment does humanism is, is based on a universalization of the European experience. And that Europeans aren't going to be especially good about self-critiquing that. Um, the fact that there are other experiences that are well-documented that can be extrapolated from should help us supplant these old false universalisms with something that actually takes into account the kinds of variety and difference that we experience in the human world. And considering that capitalist society and, you know, the Soviet you know, satellite-type experiments have all ended up in these nihilistic cul-de-sacs. There have got to be something that we can learn from other varieties of human experience on how to have a less alienated life. And I feel like that's built right into the communist project. Even the idea of having a classless society is from looking at a non-Western society. Well, and, like, but the Enlightenment was a progressive step and I think an important point in the development of humanity, or the, it, it was an important point in in human development, and that that's all it really needs to be. Like it doesn't need to be perfect. It's just this kind of paradigm shift, paradigm shift in terms of what society societies purport to value, and what we consider. And so, like what we consider civilization to be worth and what's worthwhile in civilization. And from there, you know, you can sort of debate what that means and how best to live up to that and so on and so forth. But, you know, I don't, um, I obviously, I think, it, I think it's something that almost, if you're committed to progress in any meaningful way, you cannot a priori reject the enlightenment. You just can't. Yeah. That's kind of what Goldner says too, is that, you know, he's obviously the Enlightenment wasn't perfect, but what a lot of these modern post-structuralist type thinkers want to reject is, one, the idea that the Enlightenment was a sort of rupture in human thought that created new possibilities, and two, that there even is such thing as progress whatsoever. 
Not that, you know, there's kind of this guaranteed linear progress that's, you know, inevitable and fatalistic that, you know, no matter what, history is always going to progress to a better direction, but that there can even be progress whatsoever. Because I think what Marx understood was that there can be progress at the same time, and there can also be regressions as well. And so it's not so much universal progress as it is a kind of struggle between classes and, you know, a matter of, you know, the progressive class, the proletariat eventually winning because it has the most universalistic, you know, interest, essentially. But once you admit that it's not a straight march of progress, you open the possibility that we might be in the dawn of 500 years of unstoppable reaction. <laughs> I think that people yeah. have to, you know, open, be open to that idea because there is, you know, there is kind of a, you know, value to thinking that history is ultimately on our side, that we're on the right, right side of history. And in a sense, I think we can still say that, you know, but that doesn't mean that history is going to go in the right direction. That, you know, instead of, you know, humanity figuring its shit out, that we could basically, you know, all just like embrace the ideas of the alt-right or whatever, that we're, you know, humans aren't equal, that humans, you know, are, a nation is more important than humanity as such, and we should just simply you know, do what's best for our own ethnode states or whatever. And, you know, but what it seems like, what it seems like a lot of this stuff pumps all the gas on suspicion. It's just like a deep seated suspicion of like everything to the point where, you know, you've pretty much painted yourself into a corner because if everything is just an expression of power, then if everything in society is just an expression of power, then there can't be any progress. There can't be anything. It's, it's, you know, it's basically nihilism. Or, you know, a good a good road to it anyway. Well, and I mean, that's kind of what the Foucauldian hypothesis leads to is that, you know, he, Foucault was a Maoist originally. But then my understanding is that Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelagio finally came out and he read it. And he was just like so t- terrified by, you know, what he read about the Gulag. that he just came to this conclusion that Marxism was just another kind of discourse of power through which to dominate other humans. And so really all history is just, you know, humans dominating each other using different discourses. And so what people understand as progress is really just a change in a discourse and structure of knowledge through which humans are oppressed and controlled. And so it basically, and you can actually see that ideology becoming, you know, being compatible with the right because, you know, the far right, because it's this idea that, well, you know, there's always going to be people on top and people on bottom, and we just want to make it, you know, work in the best way possible. No, the right just feels differently about it. Yeah, like it fits. It, I mean, you can see how it came out of Maoism too, actually, uh, because so much of Maoism, you know, it's it's sort of like that film uh, United Red Army, where basically. It, takes place in, a, in this instance in Japan where a bunch of former student activists decide they're going to take Mao's global people's war into Japan. So they go out into the woods and then immediately begin conducting a series of struggle sessions where they like execute everyone who doesn't have like the pure ideology necessary to be the proper like proletarian militant until they eventually just kill just about everybody. Um, and like you see like this this like struggle session dynamic it's so much of maoism where the idea seems that it's come to you know sort of like 
infect identity or constitute some portion of identity politics today where, you know, we just have to like purify people's consciousness to the point where, you know, every, everything is, uh, you know, we, we've, we've filtered all, all of, like the bad ideology and so forth so that from, from there we can begin to like build a better society, but the filtering never ends because you really can't ever get to the bottom because, you know, this stuff actually stems from like material things in society that can't just be changed by, changing people's consciousness or whatever. Um, but you can see how that would like, that's sort of um, so, that sort of sense of suspicion that fuels these sorts of things that there's like almost like a germ of like bottomless suspicion in the praxis already. If that, if that makes any sense. I would want to have a sympathetic counter that we, we live in a society that has generated humanisms like this and that Maoism in its own way is some kind of distorted, like echo of of christianity some kind of distorted echo of marxist humanism some kind of horrible butchering of it <laughs> and there's a lot of i don't know there's a lot of terrible ways to take humanism it's very vague and humanity is very vague and un- until humanity refers to something of more of a concrete actor or, or at least something that we can build towards. Uh, we do have to have this idea of humanity. Like, it's... yeah, well that, that is the rub, isn't it? Is that, you know, we still kind of don't really know what humanity is, <laughs> you know, like Marx had the very, this very like speculative notion of like species being, but you know, for the card scientific standpoint, there's still a lot about like what, 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 he, what, how human nature developed and what it is that is still very kind of vague and yeah. vague, vague enough that it can sort of constitute a screen that different people can sort of project their own wishes and ideals onto. Um, and that's kind of where like political <laughs> discourse begins to a certain extent. The thing that drives me crazy is that, okay. Let's be scientists. Let's be humanists. Okay, all humans need to eat. So you'd a human a humanist society, everyone would eat, right? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so I mean, so why bother learning more about human nature? Because you're not gonna, we're not gonna listen. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't know. Like I, I could see why people don't see this as like a, as an important orientation. But that's the thing, though. That's like a really radical demand, though, is that, you know, everyone should yeah. eat. like that's like that's like that's if you I mean, honestly, if you if you took that principle seriously politically <laughs> in the United States today, I mean, that's that, that's most of it, really, if you think about it. Like yeah. We, like humans, humans need a place to, to live. They need food. They need some water. They need right. you know, intercourse with fellow human beings in a way that's reciprocal and, you know, fulfilling. And yeah. you, you meet those four bases, you know, they need uh, – human beings need a creative outlet which with to sort of express their consciousness and their potential. You hit those yeah. five points, you basically have communism. Yeah, but it's – you know, why are all these humanist societies – why do they all end up as – you know, class societies or weird historical abortions, whatever the hell the USSR is, or, and then I don't know the Nietzschean thing to do because let's remember Foucault is trying to be a like a left wing Nietzschean. He's trying to do to the Enlightenment and humanism what Nietzsche did to Christianity, um, and I think Nietzsche gives a much better counter history of Christianity 
or at least a much more accurate one. The whole notion of genealogy and looking back where something happens, you know, where something came from, um, that that's a Nietzschean method. And one has to look at humanism and see that it came from the universal sort of imperialistic Christianity that was trying to save everybody's soul, that concerned the human community that um, Christianity was concerned with. It was not simply an ethno-religion that, like the you know Judaism, that only cares about its tribe. It concerned itself with the souls of everybody. And yet, throughout Christian history, we can say definitively, no Christian state ever really cared about saving everybody. <laughs> And um, yeah, I guess the question would be, how would clarifying our humanism help us get to an actually humanist society? Because no matter how many times they had, you know, Christian controversies over how, you know, is one in three, is it the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, what, you know, whatever, like no amount of thinking about that stuff ever actually led them to be real Christians in that, you know, true way that post-structuralists laugh at. <laughs> like, they basically assume that no one can ever organize a society along the lines of the values that people claim to have. Dante, I think, committed a crude blunder when, with a terror-inspiring ingenuity, he placed the gateway of his hell the inscription, I too was created by eternal love. At any rate, there would be more justification for placing above the gateway to the Christian paradise and its eternal bliss, the inscription, I too was created by eternal hate, provided a truth could be written above the gateway to a lie. What constitutes the bliss of this paradise? Well, Nietzsche goes on to quote, not Jerry Falwell, but St. Thomas Aquinas, great teacher, saint, certainly knew more about Christianity than I do or, or most, of, most of us. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says that the blessed in the kingdom of heaven will see the punishments of the damned in order that their bliss be more delightful for them. At that moment in Nietzsche's text, something sort of creepy should come up your back. You should go, St. Thomas Aquinas said that in heaven, our chief bliss would be that we could see all those mean people that got us while we were alive, having all that stuff ripped off of them eternally, forever. And Nietzsche's text wants to bring alive for us the barbarism, the hatred that must be buried in such a doctrine of love as its core. It's a very frightening argument, but it isn't limited, and I don't want to limit it, to a set of Christian values specifically, but to certain duplicitous ways in which words of value are used in general. The way that a bomb can be dropped lovingly surgically. See, when you cut someone in surgery, you do it to heal them, right? That's what a surgical strike is. That's what a surgeon does. Cuts the cancer out, leaves the patient alive. So, but that's not all a surgical strike is, you see. 
this field within which good and bad appear so clearly to us, or are supposed to, I think some of us may be getting a little confused, but in which values are supposed to be so clearly appear to us may very well have these duplicities built within them. A surgical strike may not be like surgery with Dr. Kildare. It could turn out there could be some resentment and hatred beneath it. There might be. It's possible. Nietzsche is not trying to argue demonstratively or to prove a syllogism, but rather to raise suspicions, to raise the kinds of suspicions that, as I say, I think many of us have when we look at the content of the values that have come up to us, uh, you know, through our traditions. That's what Nietzsche is, is powerfully and importantly good for. Not to deny, again, not to say all is relative, but to try to remind us of something of the origins of what we call good and bad, right and wrong, and so on. Uh, by the way, these, uh, these values have come out in other contexts. I, I remember in, a, in an earlier war, General Westmoreland saying, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. But it was not an irony. He meant it. I mean, so did the early uh, uh, Christian communities that settled in this country mean it. That for a witch's own good, one had to dunk her repeatedly in water. Now, we've come a long way since then, haven't we? Because now we lock people away in prisons and in institutions, torment them with drugs, lock them up in the most dangerous environments, have more people in prison in this country per capita than any country in the world except South Africa. I don't know. They may be, the new South Africa may be ahead of us. Who knows? Well, it's necessary because it's basically a prerequisite for the functioning of communism is that it's international. And for there to be communism, logically, there has to be some kind of common humanity to all people the world over. So it's like humanism is, I think, intrinsic to the communist project. Yeah, I think I think I have a sense of what humanist reason is, and it's and that's how I take Marx to be speaking when he think when he says something is necessary or historically necessary. I take him to mean this must happen in order for all of us to be free, <laughs> in order for humans, every human, to be able to develop, um, and for the development of each to be the condition for the development of all. Amen. <laughs> Yeah, I think a, um, a true proper humanism fit for Marxism would have to be one that's not blind to exploitation and oppression and doesn't use this kind of monopoly on the idea of human as a way to kind of just mask another form of exploitation and oppression. It drives me nuts. I was talking to a, a kind of heterodox, you know, Maoist or whatever today that and they were again insisting the Soviet Union is socialism, and or, or, or that it was you know a really parasitic, corrupted form of socialism, basically degenerated worker state, and like, God, like so many Marxists took these. I don't know if they're class societies, but they're at the very least very exploitative societies. I don't know. I mean, they must be classes in some way, but they didn't have stable classes. It, I, I really don't think it was capitalism, it's, but it, you know, it certainly wasn't anything. It wasn't a classless society. Yeah, I mean, it was at least like some form of bureaucratic collectivism or 
I don't know. Yeah, I I hate that term, but that's well, all kinds of different terms. And we can but use. that's probably like the closest to the truth that it was some like weird, unstable attempt to universalize like manager managerial self interest. After I don't know. I mean, it, it ended up being more like a peasant based state up until a certain point, and then they killed all the peasants. Should the ideas of uh, secularism, republicanism, rights, freedom, and equality, do these, do these words really have meaning that we should be defending anymore? Because a lot of, you know, a lot of times, and, you know, especially like the ultra-left, they attack kind of um, talking about rights and freedom and Republican democracy and stuff like that. And they see these as just kind of being inherently bourgeois concepts. You know, like the kind of Bordigas argument that democracy isn't is always going to be bourgeois no matter what. So communism has to be anti-democratic. But you know, are these things like you know secularism, democracy, and human rights and equality? Are, is it is it something that we should just kind of throw out or completely, or should we see communism basically more so as the fullest realization of these kind of values? You know. It's kind of, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the thing I hate about dialectical doublespeak sometimes is that people end up trying to argue for something that I take to be the same goal, but use completely different words and insist on using different language about it. So, you know, talking about communism as like, the most is it the most egalitarian thing ever because it's a classless society and i think uh, you know that's what i think or is it the abolition of equality or some dumb shit you know what i'm trying to say like is you know egalitarianism is you know requires like this x and y condition and therefore i'm against egalitarianism because i want to abolish this so uh, you know you have people say like oh well rights are a construct of the state and the state will be abolished under communism so therefore talking about rights is bourgeois and we should never frame anything in terms of rights you know well i mean there is this there is a sense in which right is like definitely the organizing principle of the bourgeois state I mean, it's hard to argue that it's not, but that doesn't... But at the same time, is it really possible to kind of fight for human freedom under capitalist society, you know, without, you know... Yeah, without invoking that. The idea of right. Well, okay, it's, it sounds like it comes down to a question of, like, how do you conceptualize the building of working-class power? If you imagine that the revolution has to be some, like, extreme negation that happens extreme, very, very quickly, then none of that shit really matters. But if you imagine that building working class power to the point where there's a revolution is something that will take some time and will have to be done incrementally, then, you know, there's a certain case for reformism there by which winning things like rights and, you know, democracy and so on and so forth is necessary and important. Yeah. And as for the thing about equality, well, you know, equality refers to there being, it's it's a very vague term. It's extremely vague. There's a, there's a, really provocative intro to political philosophy by Will Kimlicka, framing every single political philosophy in terms of egalitarianism, every single one in the book. He's like, well, basically, inegalitarian political philosophies have been discredited, so I'm only representing uh, egalitarian political philosophies. And he manages to do a lot of different ones, and he frames them all in terms of equality. 
Yeah, because it's a question – like equality refers to um, that there's some kind of imbalance somewhere. But what is that imbalance and where is it? Well, that's what the, that's what the debate is, isn't it? Equality of what? Yeah. Yeah, there's um, that famous Lenin quote where um, he talks about freedom, but freedom for whom to do what? So I think it's not so much rejecting these ideals as making them abstract notions into concrete realities, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, honestly, commies have enough problems. If you're against, like, you're against capitalism, you're against the state, you're against, like, cops, like, you gotta, you know, <laughs> like, why wouldn't you try to frame these things in terms of liberty and equality and freedom and democracy? And, I mean, democracy arguably is too tied to a state. But I would imagine if there was an anarchist society or something, that would probably be functioning along some line of democracy. Yeah. Like just because all that stuff is thought. just because all that stuff is attached to a bunch of like tacky, like Fourth of July patriotic kitsch products that you grew to hate as a teenager doesn't necessarily invalidate them as concepts. Yeah, and just because they're often used in this veil of hypocrisy doesn't mean that they can be never used in a good way. Because, you know, a lot of people will just, a lot of, you know, I don't know, like, trying to think of, you know, kind of these um, ultra-left, like, super negative, you know, contrarian types who's like, freedom is stupid, freedom is a bourgeois ideology. But, I mean, is not, is a point of communism not freedom, you know? Like, is that not, if, if, if freedom is pointless, and if we understand freedom to mean, you know, the self-development of hu- all of humanity you know, to its fullest potential, then why is, you know, are we not fighting for freedom by fighting for communism? Is it just not because prior ideas of freedom were not really free enough that we reject them? Not so much the idea of freedom itself that we reject. Yeah, I I suppose the one, like, postmodernist addendum that I'll accept to this is that I don't insist that this is the only way that we can talk about this, like that we have to talk about it in terms of enlightenment humanism. Like I think insisting on that versus, you know, versus being able to describe it however someone fucking wants, like is, is insisting on that is, is definitely um, going to alienate people in certain uh, organizing contexts um and and for for you know decent reasons like if you're if you're organizing around an indian reservation or something this might not be the go-to way you describe everything yeah like, we're not going we're not going to put on powdered wigs and leggings and go around <laughs> quoting diderot i get that but at yeah, the same time i, I, I might I, put on a wig and leggings uh, okay well you know I, I guess i should be a little more pluralistic here i apologize <laughs> uh but how about this we're not going to cosplay hamilton and Sounds good. Yeah, we're not going to cosplay Hamilton and turn around quoting Rousseau to people and blah, blah, blah. It's more about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. This kind of need to um, defend materialism and humanism from this kind of subjectivist, obscurantist ideology that's become so useful for neoliberalism. Like, um, yeah, that's the cash value there. I hate, I hate to quote this, but there's a Spart pamphlet um, on the Enlightenment where... Um, there's this funny uh, quote. He says, 
So Joseph Seymour wrote it, I think, and says, what passes for the left in this country these days is even more remote from scientific socialism or scientific anything. It's all too common to encounter a college or high school student at a defense rally for Mumia Abu-Jamal or at a labor rally, such as that for the Watsonville farm workers last month, who talks about the importance of spirituality, who argues that modern industrial technology threatens the future of the human race and all higher life forms on Earth. We must find ourselves defending the basic material principles of materialism and scientific rationality, the very idea of historical progress. So I've just that, that kind of, um, I guess it's necessary to defend the Enlightenment from this kind of obscurantism and anti-scientific viewpoint that kind of, you know, has become popular through postmodernism. But at the same time, we we have to accept the limits of the Enlightenment, you know. And yeah, like this, I don't trust the way the Sparts defend the Enlightenment. Dead up, like I don't think they're doing all the time that level of self critique. In fact, part of what makes people hate capitalism isn't just that it's irrational; it's that it's alienating. It's that it's alienating, and it it harms them. It makes them feel things. <laughs> makes them feel horrible. And you know, there's a lot. There's a lot we can say about the Sparts, you know, like, in which they feel at being, you know, that's going to be an episode of some kind. <laughs> yeah, that's an episode of its own. But, but, but I, I just think, thought that quote was it, funny. I, but I think it's a useful. It's a useful example of 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 what's maybe flawed here is that like the Sparts probably see any other kind of appeal besides a scientific rational appeal as somehow dishonest or talking down or something. Whereas, you know, I, I just, I, I don't see it that way. Like, I think it's corny, but like politics is not, it's not like the Pythagorean theorem. It's kind of more like inviting someone to dance. You kind of have to get, you have to persuade, <laughs> you have to get people on board. You have to yeah, there is this kind of leap of faith that people have to make. Right. You know? And like a slick bourgeois politicians understand direct, that. You know, like a kind of leap of faith beyond your direct immediate interests that you have to make to kind of accept a, a greater political project. Yeah, slick bourgeois politicians understand that. They can tap into all the libidinal stuff. They have all the psychology literature that they can read backwards and instrumentalize for advertising. They have focus testing. Like, we need to take these things seriously, at least in terms of appeal. The Spartacists are not going to convince a lot of people. I don't know. I think that's a, a useful kind of um, example because, you know, I'm not questioning the Spartacists' commitment to Enlightenment values, but perhaps they, they're not kind of making a broader humanist critique of the Enlightenment. Does that make sense? Well, it's also, you know, it sounds like a question. You're not questioning their commitment to enlightenment principles, but you are questioning their commitment to common sense and basic interaction <laughs> with other human beings. With other human beings and taking it back to human beings. Yeah. Like, yeah. yes. And I think that's really the thing that it's in communism is, you know, a real human community, as, you know, I think Kamat said it I, i'm not sure yeah. exactly but it is basically it is based on a community of human beings real human beings interacting in you know genuine ways with each other and so if you take this super cold technocratic you know approach right. you right. can you can very easily you know fall into a trap of you know ignoring the problems of alienation and oppression that really make communism worth fighting for 
And the greatest irony is that there's nothing more cold and alienating than structuralist and post-structuralist theory, for the love of God. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, and I think that's the problem with the all and like argument is kind of like, well, you know, there's you can't use humanistic appeals because that is wrong because um, of this, my reading of Capital or whatever. So really, like, communism is just this structural thing that comes out of the self-interest of the proletariat under capitalism and there's no real you know ethical or um there's no real ethical quest for freedom behind this it's just kind of like the mechanics of capitalism working in a certain way for althusser uh humanism uh, was often a word that he could switch out with hegelianism and so there's, I don't know, I have some sympathy for Althusser wanting to have a more scientific project than, you know, uh, Hegelian Marxism. But yeah, you can't really say that for the uh, post-Althusserians. And really, you know, it's like that concept of science that falls apart that the that the uh, post-structuralists uh, turn on. You know, they, they turn their guns on it. Well, you know, I mean, we need to get rid of like Hegel and replace it with like real scientific thinkers like Freud. That's what we need. <laughs> Freud was a Nietzschean. Freud said about Nietzsche, he knew more about himself than anyone who had ever lived. <laughs> That's actually funny. There's a there's a quote by Zizek where he says, um, yeah, speaking of, the, speaking of Coke, yeah, yeah all, the, all, all, of the, all the things you know in liberalism that are worth uh, preserving, like freedom and liberty and democracy. You know, these things can only be preserved by overthrowing liberalism and establishing communism. And obviously you can question how committed Zizek is to that, but I think that's actually a pretty fair point. That is much more subtle than the crude and simple one that many of them have overthrown. What a joy to overthrow a crude and simple totalitarian system. I mean, all of us enjoyed that, right? Dancing on the wall was fun because that system was so crude and not postmodern enough, it didn't understand that, you, that there are walls you can build that cannot be seen between people. Those are harder walls to overthrow. <laughs> 